question. This week we're going back to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 after last week's little uh, excursion talking about the vaccine and the mark of the beast and trying to bring some clarity on that issue. Now we're back to uh, the end of Paul's really magnificent chapter uh, discussing the resurrection, uh, the evidence for the resurrection, the reason that we are insistent that the resurrection is a real doctrine and really will take place. Um, and he, he comes to the very end here. I mean, it's 58 verses that he spends on this. That's how important it is. And he's going to talk about um, what happens to those who have died, um, how, you know, where do they go. He's going to talk about what will happen to us if we're here when Jesus comes back again. Uh, and he's going to talk about what our bodies will be like in the, the new heavens and new earth. And so with that, by way of introduction, let's go ahead and look at verse 50. It says, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Now, many people uh, throughout church history have, I actually shouldn't say that, in fairly modern times, actually, and maybe back in the very beginning, um, understood verses like this to be teaching that heaven was going to be filled in some sense or another with like disembodied souls. And that, that popular conception is still uh, very, very common today. I think if you ask the average person out there what heaven will be like, they, they tend to think of it in that kind of way, that it's this mystical sort of place where, you know, souls are floating around or something like that. Uh, or, or maybe they think of, you know, think of it in, you know, the painting way where some, you know, we're all playing uh, harps and, you know, sitting on clouds like... Uh, uh, fat little babies, you know, that you see uh, portrayed back in the old days. But that, none of that is actually true. In fact, just because Paul says flesh and blood will not inherit the kingdom of God, he's not specifically saying that we will be disembodied when we arrive in the kingdom of God. No, we always have to remember that the model for what this body is going to be like is going to be like Jesus's resurrection body. And what was Jesus's resurrection body like? Well, it was obviously something that people could recognize. It looked like Jesus. It, it was his body in one sense. And yet, obviously, it was very different. He was able to go through walls and able to show up suddenly out of the blue. And so, so there's a connection to the body we have, but it's also a different body. It's an imperishable body. And that's what Paul means when he says flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. That, that which is perishable cannot inherit the kingdom of God. But don't take that to mean that we're going to be disembodied sort of, uh, you know, mystical orbs floating around in the heavenly somewhere. That's not what's going on here. Think of it more in terms, if you need to, as a different sort of dimensions uh, type of existence. He goes on, verse 51, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. There's that morphing from flesh and blood body that we know now that dies to a new imperishable body. We shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality. Now, let me just stop there and, and bring a little clarity here, because sometimes, first of all, um, people have read this passage and heard the phrase, in the twinkling of an eye, the suddenness of this moment, 
And they will sometimes attribute this passage to what has been known as the rapture doctrine, the idea that there is going to be a separate event before the true second coming of Christ in which God is going to lift up those who are his, um, causing them to basically vanish from the earth, um, and then there will be a certain amount of time before the real second coming happens. Now, obviously very popularized by the Left Behind series, which was a, a massive sales and books. Uh, before that, it was the late great planet Earth. I mean, this doctrine is, is quite well known in our modern time. But the fact is, um, I personally do not believe that such an event is actually happening. I believe that this passage and the others like it that people have used to talk about the rapture are in fact just about the second coming. Now, let me explain a, a few reasons why I, I believe that. Uh, it's, and I'm not going in any particular order, but first of all, um, the rapture doctrine is a very, very new development on the scene in church history. The fact is we don't have any record of anybody teaching a separate rapture event before the second coming until the 1800s. And really the way that kind of started was from a vision of a, of a woman in Scotland. And, it, um, and she came up with this idea based on what she said was a vision, and then it was popularized by preachers that had caught onto it. The reality is, though, it's just not something that you ever see in church history. Now, that doesn't mean inherently that it's wrong. There are times where there's a doctrine or there's, there's something theological that we've learned over time that we didn't pick up on in the past, and we've had to change our thinking about things. But it does contribute to my skepticism of the doctrine. The second main reason I would say that I'm, I'm really, um, I, I don't believe or don't subscribe to this separate rapture event is, again, because the actual passages of Scripture speak against it. Uh, take, for example, the famous uh, passage in Matthew 24 that is, I think, most often referenced for, be, for picturing the rapture. One will be taken and one will be left. Well, the assumption is the one who, ones who are taken are the Christians because that's what the rapture doctrine teaches. But in fact, if you go back to the context of Matthew 24, the picture that Jesus uses to describe that event, the, 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 the most um, uh, similar event, he says, is that it will be like the flood of Noah's day that people will be suddenly taken and there will be some left. Now think about what happened in Noah's day. Who were the ones taken away during the flood and who were the ones left behind? The ones left behind were the saints, Noah's family. The ones taken away in the flood were those who were judged. It's just a fact that actually in that passage, in Matthew 24, you want to be the one left behind. I know that's totally different than probably the way you've heard it taught in many different places, but check out the context. You'll see what I'm saying is true. Those who are left behind in Noah's story are the saints. And so, by extension, those who will be left behind in the second coming are those who are the saints. Now, you're going to say, wait, wait, wait. You're so, but Jesus is going to come and we're going to meet him in the air. That's what 1 Thessalonians 4 says, Eric. True. But very, very important. The word that's used to describe meeting him in the air or, or the word for rapture, being caught up. Um, 
the word for meeting in the air is actually the word that was used to describe what a city would do when a conquering general would come to announce his triumph over his enemies. And what would happen is the people from the city would go outside of the city and meet up with their great general to celebrate his victory and then to march into the city with him. In the same way, Jesus says we will meet him in the air and then the direction is, just like what happened with the general, we're going to come down. Third thing, real quick. have to remember the trajectory of Scripture. Go to the end of Revelation. What happens? The heavens and the earth meet. Heaven comes down to the earth. Folks, it's going to be a new heaven and new earth. Heaven is finally going to encompass everything around us. Thy kingdom come will finally come true forever. And so I believe that this passage is not teaching a separate rapture event, but this passage, in fact, is all about the second coming of Christ. I mean, even in this very passage of 1 Corinthians 15, what does Paul say the trumpet is? It's the last trumpet. It's not a trumpet preceding the last trumpet, which you'd have to kind of believe if this was about the separate rapture event. No, it's the last trumpet. It's the final call announcing Jesus' victory over the world, and Jesus is coming to finally claim that world back for good. And that is good news. So he says, this perishable body must be put, must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O oh, death, where is your victory? O oh, death, where is your sting? I love those words. Of course, they are famous words from the Old Testament, from the prophet Isaiah and from the prophet Hosea. O oh, death, where is your victory? O oh, death, where is your sting? Paul is taunting death because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ and because of his victorious second coming that could happen any day. And when it does happen, it will be like that twinkling of an eye. Boom, all be over. And the dead will be raised, and those who are still here living will be raised, and then they will live in victory over the world with Christ as Lord and Savior of that world. Now, Paul's going to say something here related to his statements. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? He says this, verse 56, the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. Now, this is a counterintuitive thing, this second part of it. We know that the sting of death is sin. Sin is, is what is, we feel that sting in our lives as we continue to struggle with sin and as we continue to deal with people that sin against us. We feel that. But what's really counterintuitive is when Paul says the power of sin is the law. Now, why is that so counterintuitive? Because we think that rules are actually what prevent us from sinning. That the more rules, the more righteous. The more rules, the more likely we are to be good, good folks, good fellas. Now, there's an aspect in which I'm not advocating for lawlessness in society. I'm not. But what Paul's point is here is that, in fact, the law often inflames our flesh. 
instead of causing us to say, oh great, I'm going to follow it 100%, in fact, the law actually gives sin its power. As you all know, I'm the father of three boys. Um, it doesn't take much uh, time in parenting to recognize that, uh, I mean, it starts off when they're young. I didn't have to teach them this. They, they somehow picked it up instinctively. That if I told my children no, their first instinct was to say yes. The power of sin is the law. Paul says in the resurrection, those powers are gone. We will no longer be inflamed by the law's demands on us. We will no longer need to be because we'll no longer have any desire for sin. One of my great mentors, and certainly one of yours here at Hillside, Tim Istabo, he was my, for some of you, you might not know this, he was my professor in Bible college and in seminary, so we, we knew each other for quite some time, and so it's one of, it's just a great thing that I get to serve at the church that he served at. Um, but one of the things that I always remember Tim said was very different, the most, the best thing about heaven will be that for the first time we truly will actually hate sin that it won't be a temptation anymore, that it won't be a problem anymore, it won't be a hindrance anymore, we'll just truly loathe it. We say now, boy, I hate my sin, but we find ourselves going back to it far too often because we don't really hate it. There's still part of us that loves it and wants to coddle it. But when we get to the resurrected state, when we get to the new heavens and new earth, that's gone. The temptation's gone. The grip that sin has on us, the grip that the law has on us is gone. We're freed. As Paul says, verse 57, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So in light of that, Paul's conclusion for us today and for the Corinthians who were reading this letter is this. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that, the, the, that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Now let's just make the connection here and then we'll wrap up. Because you have been saved through faith in Jesus Christ and are promised that you will be raised to new life, to an imperishable body, because you know that this life is not it, that frees you up now to be able to give your all to serving your neighbor. Not for salvation, but because you are indeed saved and will be saved on the last day when that trumpet blast comes and Jesus arrives as our heavenly victor over the world, the flesh, and the devil. So, folks, as you ponder this and you ponder the new life to come and the resurrection that you've been given in Christ Jesus, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that the Lord, in, in the Lord your labor is not in vain. All right, folks, that is it for today's uh, devotion. I hope that you were blessed by uh, the recognition of what's coming for us. Could be any moment. And uh, we say with the early church, come Lord Jesus, come. Until then, I hope you are blessed richly this weekend and you can join us again on Sunday at 10 a.m.